You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 215th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. When we left off last time, it was about 4.30 on the afternoon of October 8, 1862, and northwest of Perryville, Kentucky, Alexander McCook's Corps of the Federal Army of the Ohio was fighting for its very existence. By half past four, McCook's entire line was breaking apart under the relentless Confederate pressure. The rebel commanders urged their men onto greater efforts, hoping to turn the Union retreat into a rout. With the Confederate objective, the Dixville Crossroads, only a mile away, the battle teetered on a knife's edge. While McCook's Corps battled the Confederates, the Army of the Ohio's commander, Major General Don Carlos Buell, enjoyed a quiet afternoon not far away. Buell was still very sore from the fall from his horse the day before, and although initially he had planned to strike the Confederates at Perryville on October 8th, his army had been slow to move into position for the attack. And so, as we mentioned previously, Buell assumed that meant the battle would be delayed until the next day. The rebels, however, had other plans, and by 4.30 on the afternoon of the 8th, their attack had pushed McCook's first corps to the breaking point. Buell was at his headquarters at the James Dorsey House, about two miles to the south from where McCook's corps was fighting for its life. However, just the right combination of terrain and weather conditions created an effect known as an acoustic shadow, and it prevented Buell from realizing that major combat was going on just a short distance away. Put simply, because of this acoustic shadow, the sound of the fighting didn't reach Buell's headquarters. There were other Civil civil War battlefields where acoustic shadows were reported, but the most famous occurrence is probably here at Perryville. So, as strange as it may seem, Buell had no idea until late afternoon that a major battle was in progress a stone's throw from his headquarters. All Buell heard, as he later described it, was, quote, a sudden increase of cannonading at two o'clock, but as the firing as suddenly subsided and no report came to me, I had ceased to think of the occurrence. In the middle of the afternoon, Buell and Third Corps Commander Charles Gilbert ate a leisurely lunch, while nearby, McCook's Federals were locked in desperate combat with the attacking Confederates. Colonel John Harlan of the 10th Kentucky, which was camped near the Dorsey House that day, 
confirmed in a letter how oblivious the army commander remained. Harlan said, quote, I was within 100 yards of Buell's headquarters during the whole time of the battle. I heard no firing from the direction of the battlefield, and if I did not hear it, Buell could not have done so. Then, about 4 p.m., one of McCook's staff officers galloped up to the Dorsey house and, as Buell later recalled, reported that First Corps, quote, had been seriously engaged for several hours and that the right and left of that corps were being turned and severely pressed, end quote. And so while the Confederate assault had started at 2 o'clock, it wasn't until 4 p.m. that Buell received the news that 1st Corps was under serious attack and was hard-pressed by the rebels. McCook asked for help. Buell was stunned by this unexpected development and by the potential for disaster, and he immediately ordered two brigades from Gilbert's 3rd Corps to move north and assist McCook. And so about 4.30, Colonel Michael Gooding's brigade of Mitchell's division and Colonel James Stedman's brigade of Sheff's division started their march north toward the Dixville crossroads with Gooding's brigade in the lead. The soonest these reinforcements could arrive at the crossroads, though, would be about 5.30. Meanwhile, First Corps struggled to survive. Terrell's and Little's brigades were shattered, while Harris's men in the center sought to escape and find a spot to make a stand. On the Union left, Starkweather was about to pull his regiments back off Starkweather Hill, but they would be closely pressed by the rebels, and such a dangerous withdrawal might turn into a panicky retreat at any moment. In essence, the battle had become a race to see if the attacking Confederates could push to and seize the Dixville crossroads before the Federal reinforcements arrived on the scene to assist McCook's men. And now, another factor came into play as the sun began to set, so if the Yankees could only hold out a little while longer, darkness would bring an end to the fighting. Over on McCook's left, Colonel John Starkweather surveyed the ground behind his position on Starkweather Hill to see if there was a spot where his men could retreat. A few hundred yards west of the hill stood a ridge topped by a belt of woods and a stone wall that ran at right angles to the Benton Road. Half a mile beyond the stone wall was the Dixville Crossroads, and there wasn't another spot to make a stand between the wall and the crossroads. That meant that once he gave up Starkweather Hill, the colonel's men would have to hold the ridge and stone wall. Having decided where to retreat, Starkweather then turned to the problem of moving his cannon back. So many battery horses had been shot down that it was up to the Union infantry to get the guns down the steep rear slope of Starkweather Hill and into position on the next ridge. While their comrades held off the Confederates, other Yankee foot soldiers pulled the cannon back by hand as fast as they could, but only six of the twelve guns were withdrawn before a third rebel charge swarmed over Starkweather Hill. The hard-pressed regiments of Starkweather's 28th Brigade fell back under covering fire from their artillery. The three veteran outfits withdrew in good order, but confusion reigned as the Federals regrouped behind the stone wall. Shattered units from the open knob fight had congregated in the area, and survivors of the 21st Wisconsin milled around behind the wall. 
William Terrell was here also, and he was mortally wounded while trying to reorganize his men. General McCook appeared on horseback and helped Starkweather gather as many troops as possible to defend the position. Manny's and Stewart's Confederates crested Starkweather Hill about 4.30 and saw the stone wall position in front of them. These two brigades were running out of time, men, and energy. They had already taken two hills defended by Federal infantry and artillery and now faced a third. Most of the rebel units had already suffered over 40% casualties. Several regiments had lost all of their field officers. And yet, for the third time that afternoon, these two Confederate brigades moved to the attack. Starkweather had his men ready for this last rebel charge. At some spots, the Federal soldiers were packed six deep behind the stone wall, and the Yankees met the Confederates with the storm of musketry and artillery fire that, quote, made sad havoc of their lines, according to the 21st Wisconsin's Sergeant John Otto. A private in the 1st Wisconsin later said, quote, It was not generalship there. It was simply the fighting, staying qualities of the Union soldier. The Confederate assault melted before this stream of shot and shell, and the rebels were forced to retreat back to the safety of the east, east slope of Starkweather Hill. With this final effort, the rebels were played out in this sector. In the face of the stubborn Federal resistance, the Confederates on this flank couldn't make the final breakthrough needed to reach the Dixville crossroads. As the rebels fell back, Starkweather's veterans charged forward to drive them from the field. The 1st Wisconsin's color bearer, Sergeant John Durham, was in the forefront of the advance, and for his valor, he would later be awarded the Medal of Honor. A melee ensued atop Starkweather Hill, and a private in the 1st Wisconsin carried off a Confederate battle flag from Manny's brigade as a prize. The exhausted rebel soldiers retreated back toward Open Knob in the face of this determined Union counterattack. As darkness started to cover the battlefield, musket fire from the 79th Pennsylvania and 24th Illinois continued to lash the reeling Confederates, while the men of the 1st Wisconsin manhandled back to safety those Federal cannon that had been previously captured by the rebels. Once that job was successfully completed, Starkweather pulled his battered but victorious regiments back to the stone wall. While Starkweather's brigade secured McCook's left flank, on the right, Colonel George Webster's all-rookie 34th Brigade made its stand. Some of these men had taken part in halting Donaldson's Confederates earlier in the day, but now at this point in the battle, most were seeing action for the first time. Webster formed a defensive line at right angles to the Mackville Road along a ridge 200 yards east of the Dixville Crossroads. John Russell's White House stood just to the south of the Mackville Road. The 80th Indiana, 98th Ohio, and 121st Ohio stood in front, while the 50th Ohio, whose colonel had deserted them, remained in reserve. The six guns of Captain Samuel Harris's Indiana battery provided artillery support. For their part, the Confederates had become so disorganized by their pursuit of the retreating Federals on this section of the battlefield 
that, as Patrick Claiborne admitted, the rebels were forced to halt their advance and reorganize. Once that was accomplished, though, the Confederates here pressed forward once again, with the brigades of Brown, Wood, Claiborne, and Adams all trying to drive back the Yankees and reach the Dixville crossroads. Brown's brigade fell off the pace as Brown suffered a wound and his men ran out of ammunition. Adams' troops were distracted by Federal artillery fire from the south from guns of Gilbert's Third Corps, and Adams' advance ground to a halt. Meanwhile, Claiborne's and Wood's men attacked the Yankees head-on, pushing close to the Union line before being pinned down. Poor coordination between the Confederate units blunted some of the attackers' power, but they still hit Webster's Federals hard. Webster tried to hold his rookies in line, but several units broke and ran in the face of the Confederate onslaught. Then Webster went down with a mortal wound, and the 34th Brigade disintegrated. However, Division Commander Lovell Rousseau was working nearby to rally some of Harris's and Little's troops, who had previously retreated before the earlier Confederate attack, and now Rousseau personally led these men back into the fight to stem this rebel assault. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and at this critical juncture in the battle, the 1st Corps' engineer detachment also went into the fight as infantry. Rousseau moved up and down the line, oblivious to Confederate fire, waving his cap at the tip of his sword. His display of bravery had the desired effect on the wavering Union troops and the shaky defensive line at the Russell House held together, for now. Patrick Claiborne pushed his men forward to within 75 yards of the Yankees' position at the Russell House, but then his advance ground to a halt because of a combination of the furious federal defensive fire, his own men running low on ammunition, and the fact that he had no support on either of his flanks. About this time, Claiborne, who had been wounded in the face at the Battle of Richmond, now received another wound that temporarily put him out of action. Sam Wood's brigade of Confederates pushed even closer to the Federal line and were on the verge of completing the rout of Webster's Greenhorns. Despite being wounded, Wood led his men forward toward a fence defended by the 80th Indiana and 121st Ohio. One of Wood's Alabamians later recalled that, quote, We got within 30 yards of the fence, but our ranks were so badly thinned that we could not get to them. We stayed there for 30 minutes or more, and there being no more troops to our right, the Yankees came around our right and were getting behind us. Then we were ordered to fall back, so we got back to a depression, were halted and lay down, and while lying there firing, our color bearer, Neil Godwin, said, Dinged if they aren't charging us. And they were. But this federal counterattack didn't come from 1st Corps troops. It came from Gooding's Federals from Gilbert's 3rd Corps, who had finally arrived on the scene. As y'all recall, once Buell had learned that serious fighting was going on, he had immediately ordered two of Gilbert's brigades to march north to assist McCook's men, and now the first of those reinforcements, Gooding's Brigade, was arriving on the scene. Colonel Michael Gooding, a Prussian Army veteran, brought up a brigade of three Illinois and Indiana regiments, totaling about 1,400 men. His troops had covered the two miles to the Dixville crossroads quickly and arrived there about a quarter after five, 
shortly after Webster was hit. Gooding's guide later described how they rounded a bend in the road and suddenly came upon the fighting. Quote, there before me, within a few hundred yards, the Battle of Perryville burst into view, and the roar of artillery and the continuous rattle of the musketry first broke upon my ear. It was the finest spectacle I ever saw. It was wholly unexpected, and it fixed me with, ex with astonishment. It was like tearing away a curtain from the front of a great picture, or the sudden bursting of a thundercloud when the sky in front seems serene and clear. Here there was not the warning of an instant. At one bound, my horse carried me from stillness into the uproar of battle. Gooding's troops appeared on the scene in the nick of time. As Gooding himself later said, quote, On reaching the field, I found the forces badly cut up and retreating, they having fallen back one mile and were being hotly pressed by the enemy. First Corps Commander Alexander McCook met Gooding and explained the situation. Starkweather had secured the Corps' left flank, but Rousseau's shaky line at the Russell House needed help to prevent its collapse. Without an immediate Federal counterattack in this sector to blunt the Confederate assault, all might be lost. Gooding moved quickly to move his three regiments from column into line of battle. He placed the rookie 75th Illinois in the center, with the veteran 59th Illinois to the left and the veteran 22nd Illinois on the right. Once he completed his deployment, Gooding started his men forward. The sudden appearance of fresh Union troops counterattacking stunned the Federals. Some of Wood's men broke, forcing the entire rebel line to fall back toward Loomis Heights. Confederate commanders Polk and Hardee now committed their last available brigade, St. John Little's Arkansans, who had defended Peters Hill that morning. Little deployed his Arkansans and moved forward about a quarter to six. By that time, the shadows were lengthening and darkness was about to descend upon the battlefield. Little's men got into a firefight with Gooding's Federals, forcing the Yankees back from their forward position. Gooding's men withdrew back to a slight elevation just east and northeast of the Dixville crossroads. Behind them were the rallied elements of McCook's battered corps. By 6.30, the fighting had wound down into a bloody stalemate as Gooding's Federals and Little's Confederates traded fire under the light of a rising near-full moon. Still seeking a breakthrough, at this moment, Leonidas Polk rode forward to conduct a personal reconnaissance of the lines. In the shadowy light of the moon, it was fortunate for Polk that his dark overcoat was indistinguishable from the Union blue, because as Polk rode out to investigate a supposed case of friendly fire, he asked, What troops are these? The reply came back, 22nd Indiana, Lieutenant Colonel Squire Keith commanding. Polk, to his credit, kept his wits about him, and managed by bluster and bluff to get the nearby Federal soldiers to hold their fire as he rode down the enemy line. He then spurred his horse back toward Little's Arkansans while shouting, General, every mother's son of them are Yankees. Open fire. Three devastating rebel volleys flamed in the darkness as Little's men opened up on the surprised Hoosiers. In about a minute and a half, Lieutenant Colonel Keith was killed and 65% of the 22nd Indiana lay dead or wounded, giving the unfortunate unit the tragic distinction of suffering the highest percentage loss of any regiment at Perryville. 
Little sensed an opportunity and renewed his advance. Gooding tried to rally his men, but he fell wounded and was captured. The rest of his troops withdrew beyond the Dixville crossroads, leaving the vital intersection at the mercy of the Confederates. With the objective of the Confederate assault within reach, Little wanted to push forward and capture the crossroads. But as he and Polk discussed the situation, they heard the Federals nearby begin cheering, signaling the arrival of Steedman's brigade of reinforcements from Third Corps. As you guys will recall, Steedman had been following behind Gooding and had now arrived on the scene. Polk was still shaken by his encounter with the Federals in the darkness, and realizing what the enemy cheering meant, Polk now turned to Little and declared, quote, I want no more night fighting, end quote. Polk ordered the Arkansans to hold in place, and the fighting on the northern end of the battlefield came to an end, although a thin screen of rebel skirmishers did stand at the Dixville crossroads, maintaining a tenuous hold on the Confederate objective. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. While McCook's first corps was being pushed toward the edge of destruction, down on the Springfield Pike, Gilbert's third corps had become more active. As you guys will recall, Braxton Bragg had ordered that most of the Confederate units be concentrated to the north of Perryville for his attack to smash the Federal line there. But Bragg didn't realize that two other Federal corps were also close at hand, and so his dispositions meant that just 3,500 Confederates had been left west and southwest of Perryville to confront 42,000 men of the Federal's 2nd and 3rd Corps. Colonel Samuel Powell commanded the Brigade of Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Alabama troops that had been left to guard the Confederate Center near Bottom Hill. At 4.15 that afternoon, Powell sent his men west in a reconnaissance in force, which promptly ran into Sheridan's and Mitchell's divisions of Federals. The heavily outnumbered Confederates quickly realized they had bitten off more than they could chew. 
After the Federal's superior numbers began to tell, and after some brief but intense fighting, the rebels fled back eastward toward Perryville. Mitchell sent Colonel William Carlin's brigade of Wisconsin, Ohio, and Illinois regiments in pursuit of the retreating Confederates. Carlin paused on the outskirts of town to deploy his men and position his artillery support. As Powell's Confederates fled across the Chaplin River into Perryville, four cannon of a Minnesota battery quickly dropped trail and began to lob shells into the town. Several buildings on Main Street were set ablaze by the Federal artillery fire. After the bombardment stopped, Carlin sent the 21st and 38th Illinois into Perryville. They secured the western part of the town, but weren't strong enough to cross the river and tangle directly with Powell's rebels, who had now been reinforced by Preston Smith's Tennesseans, who represented the very last of Bragg's reserves. The Confederates hunkered down in the buildings on the east side of the chaplain and traded fire with the Federals on the west side of the river. Ninth Division Commander Robert Mitchell sensed that a superb opportunity lay in front of him to seize Perryville and smash the Confederate center, and Mitchell appealed to Gilbert for reinforcements. But Gilbert feared a trap, and he refused Mitchell's repeated requests for aid. Gilbert, already despised by many of the soldiers and officers of Third Corps, was later roundly condemned for not pushing forward and crossing the river. One officer stated that, quote, If Nelson had lived and been in command of Third Corps, he would not have waited for orders, but would have regarded the actual fight going on as sufficient order that he should go in and assist in defeating the enemy. End quote. But Bull Nelson was dead, and Charles Gilbert would show no initiative to seize the moment, not when he, had, when he lacked orders from Don Carlos Buell to move forward. And so darkness brought an end to the fighting in the streets of Perryville. About 7 p.m., the Battle of Perryville drew to a close as the firing up and down the line sputtered out. For its size, the battle had been a bloody affair. The Federals sustained just over 4,200 casualties, while the Confederates lost about 3,400 men. Most of those casualties came between the hours of 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. In five hours of brutal combat, approximately 7,500 men on both sides had been killed, wounded, or went missing. It was one of the worst per-hour casualty rates of any battle during the Civil War. A few days after the battle, Braxton Bragg, who had been in the thick of it at Shiloh, wrote of Perryville, quote, For the time engaged, it was the severest and most desperately contested engagement within my knowledge. That night, both Army commanders considered their options. Don Carlos Buell met with Gilbert, McCook, and George Thomas to discuss the situation. McCook reported that his corps had been badly knocked about during the day's fighting. In fact, its losses in troops and leadership had reduced 1st Corps' effective combat strength to barely more than one large division. But while Gilbert's 3rd Corps had seen some fighting, it still remained relatively fresh, and Crittenden's 2nd Corps had hardly fired a shot on October 8th. After weighing these reports, 
Buell issued orders for Second and Third Corps to attack the Confederates at dawn. Over on the Confederate side, Braxton Bragg had kept tabs on the day's fighting from his headquarters at the Samuel Crawford House on the north side of Perryville. Although his men had mauled an entire Federal Corps and had reached the Dixville crossroads, their overall tactical situation was not so good. Casualties had reduced Confederate troop strength at Perryville to about 13,000 men, while the officer ranks had been especially hard hit and would blunt the rebel forces' combat effectiveness in any further fighting. In addition, it had now become obvious to Bragg that rather than just facing a portion of Buell's command that day, actually the entire Federal Army of the Ohio had been within a few miles of Perryville on October 8th. Bragg didn't know why most of the overwhelming Union force hadn't been engaged in the day's fighting, but he realized that if the Confederates stayed and renewed the contest in the morning, there was every expectation that their heavily outnumbered force would be crushed by all three enemy corps. Bragg later wrote, quote, Assured that the enemy had concentrated his three corps against us, and finding that our loss had already been quite heavy in the unequal contest, I gave orders to fall back at daylight on Harrodsburg and sent instructions to Major General Kirby Smith to move his command to form a junction with me at that place. And so, while the Battle of Perryville may have been a tactical success for the Confederates, Bragg gained no strategic advantage from the fighting on October 8th. In fact, strategically, it was a Union victory since Buell's plans to advance into central Kentucky and confront the Confederates hadn't been altered in any way, while Bragg's and Kirby Smith's situation in the Bluegrass State was rapidly unraveling. As the high commands deliberated, an informal truce settled over the battlefield. The Federals slept on their arms in the dark as best they could, but the Confederates lit campfires all along their lines. On the north end of the field, both sides sent out parties to look after the wounded. An Alabamian later said, quote, We were up with the wounded boys nearly all night. We went in squads of two, three, or four without lights that night to where our dead comrades lay on the field and felt in their pockets to get their effects to send to their homes. Between 2 and 3 a.m. on the morning of October 9th, the Confederates stole away from Perryville. Don found Bragg's army marching northeast to Harrodsburg, while Wheeler's rebel horsemen stayed behind to act as a rear guard. The Federal advance at first light pushed forward into thin air and caught only a few enemy stragglers. Buell declined to launch an immediate pursuit of Bragg, and instead the Army of the Ohio spent October 9th at Perryville, preparing to set off after the Confederates the next day. Thirty miles north of Perryville, outside Lawrenceburg, Kirby Smith's command hurried south to join Bragg at Harrodsburg. On the evening of October 8th, Smith received word that Joshua Sills' reinforced division of Federals, which, y'all might recall, at the beginning of the campaign had marched from Louisville to threaten the state capital of Frankfurt, was now near Lawrenceburg, so Kirby Smith drew up his troops south of town to await developments. On the morning of October 9th, Sills' leading units clashed with elements of Kirby Smith's force south of Lawrenceburg at a place called Dry Ridge. 
After a sharp but inconclusive engagement that lasted all morning, the Confederates withdrew along the road south toward Harrodsburg, which was twenty miles away. Meanwhile, Bragg's Confederates arrived in Harrodsburg on October 9th and spent the day reorganizing and resupplying. Kirby Smith's men arrived the next day, and finally, for the first time in the Kentucky campaign, the two rebel armies had joined forces. Bragg deployed the troops along the ridges south and west of town to confront the rebels on something approaching even terms. On the morning of October 10th, the Army of the Ohio set off from Perryville in pursuit of the Confederates. Buell hadn't lost sight of his overall plan, and so he personally led 1st Corps and 3rd Corps northeast toward Harrodsburg to link up with Sill and fight another battle with the Confederates, while George Thomas took 2nd Corps east toward Danville in hopes of cutting Bragg off from his supply depot at Camp Breckenridge and threatening the rebels' line of communications down to Tennessee. Wheeler's rebel cavalry skirmished with Federal 2nd Corps troops on the Danville Pike, and Wheeler sent word to Bragg regarding the Yankee movements. With the enemy advancing on both his front and rear, Bragg nevertheless at first was inclined to still give battle at Harrodsburg, but he soon thought better of the idea, and on October 11th he withdrew his entire command 15 miles southeast to his supply depot at Camp Breckenridge. There, Bragg decided he would make a stand and try to salvage something of the campaign. Buell's force followed carefully and with no sense of urgency. After he arrived at Camp Breckenridge, Bragg must have reflected on how the Federals had outmaneuvered him over the past 11 days and wrecked his campaign. His mood darkened as he dwelt upon the fact that the citizens of the Bluegrass State had failed to rally to the Confederate cause in any substantial way. On October 12th, Bragg sent an update to Richmond and gave vent to his frustration over the current state of affairs. At the end of his message, Bragg said, quote, The campaign here was predicated on a belief and the most positive assurances that the people of this country would rise en masse to assert their independence. No people ever had so favorable an opportunity, but I am distressed to add there is little or no disposition to avail of it. Willing perhaps to accept their independence, they are neither disposed nor willing to risk their lives or their property in its achievement. With ample means to arm 20,000 men, and with that force to fully redeem the state, we have not yet issued half the arms left us by casualties incident to the campaign. End quote. As we mentioned before, Bragg's outlook regarding all things Kentucky had obviously soured, and by this point he was simply looking for a way out of the campaign and was preparing Richmond for the worst. Besides the failure of the citizens of the Bluegrass State to rise in mass, and besides being outmaneuvered by the Federals, the Confederate supply situation continued to concern Bragg, as it had throughout the Kentucky campaign. Once he arrived at Camp Breckenridge, Bragg discovered that the place only had a little more than four days' worth of rations for the entire rebel force of 45,000 men. Also, at this point, the dry weather began to turn, and the autumn rains started. That meant that before long, the worsening weather would make transporting supplies up from Tennessee problematical. 
All of these factors forced Bragg to make an immediate decision about whether to stay in Kentucky or withdraw southward. On October 13th, Bragg decided he would head back to Tennessee. That day, the Confederates pulled out of Camp Breckenridge and marched for Cumberland Gap and then Knoxville. Anything they couldn't carry was destroyed. Buell launched a methodical pursuit of the withdrawing rebels, and Federal cavalry clashed repeatedly with Wheeler's horsemen, who screened Bragg's retreat. The rough country and Unionist bushwhackers also created problems for Bragg's soldiers, but by October 24th, much of the army had crossed through Cumberland Gap and back into Tennessee. The remainder followed within a few days, and by the last day of October, the Confederates had completely abandoned the Bluegrass State. Buell's Federals followed to just south of London, Kentucky, and then broke off the pursuit on October 19th and marched west toward the line of the Louisville and Nashville Railroad. The decision to leave the Bluegrass State was heartbreaking for Confederate Kentuckians. John Hunt Morgan remained with his cavalry at Lexington, and on on October 17th, he fought a small battle a mile outside of the city in a futile effort to prevent the federal reoccupation of his hometown. Perhaps the saddest Kentuckians were John Breckinridge's Orphan Brigade soldiers, who by mid-October were finally on their way to join Bragg. They hadn't been anywhere near home since the previous February, and now each day the anticipation grew as they marched north from Knoxville. When the Orphan Brigade camped on October 16th, the mountains of Kentucky were in view, and the next morning the men formed up in full expectation of camping the following night in their home state. But just before the day's march began, a courier delivered orders for Breckenridge to return to Knoxville. Bragg's decision to end the campaign made any further northward move by the Orphan Brigade unnecessary. The Kentuckians spent the day there with the mountains still in view. At that evening's formation, the soldiers were quiet. One man said it was, quote, the silence of stern manhood bowed down by bitter disappointment, end quote. The next day, news of the defeat at Perryville arrived, along with confirmation that the Orphan Brigade was to retrace its steps and return to Knoxville. On October 19th, the Confederate Kentuckians took one last look at home and then turned their faces southward, never to return to the Bluegrass State for the remainder of the war. Meanwhile, Buell's leisurely pursuit after Perryville had generated frustration and anger in Washington, and by late October, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck was again looking for a new commander for the Army of the Ohio. On October 24th, Buell was replaced by Major General William Rosecrans, who had recently won a victory at Corinth in northern Mississippi. And we'll have more to say about the Battle of Corinth in the near future on the podcast. At any rate, Rosecrans would soon take the army into Tennessee and leave Kentucky behind. After October 1862, the dream of a Confederate Kentucky was dead forever. Aside from cavalry raids, the Confederates never again invaded the Bluegrass State. But for ten weeks in the summer of 1862, when combined with Robert E. Lee's invasion of Maryland, a Confederate Kentucky had seemed to lie tantalizingly within reach. But the failure of Bragg and Kirby Smith to cooperate in any meaningful way 
combined with Buell's movement from Louisville, ultimately doomed the Confederates' Kentucky campaign. The Battle of Perryville, the largest and bloodiest Civil War battle to take place in the Bluegrass State, ensured that Kentucky would remain in the Union for the rest of the war. After the fall of 1862, the focus of the war in the Western Theater would shift decisively to Tennessee, and both armies would receive new names. The Army of the Ohio would become the Army of the Cumberland, while Bragg's Army of the Mississippi would turn into the Army of Tennessee. Although the Confederates would have several more opportunities for success in the West, their prospects would never again be so bright as during the 1862 Kentucky Campaign. Seen in that light, the Battle of Perryville can be considered the high-water mark of the Confederacy in the Western Theater. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Perryville Under Fire, The Aftermath of Kentucky's Largest Civil War Battle by Stuart W. Sanders. Yes, this is the second week in a row that we've recommended one of Sanders' books. Uh, No, we aren't working for him on commission. It's just that he's written a couple of good books about the Battle of Perryville. And, well, there you go. Uh, This book, Perryville Under Fire, looks at the fact that although the armies moved on after the battle, the locals were left to deal with the aftermath of the fighting, especially dealing with the dead and wounded. And the effects lasted all winter and into the following spring. Perryville's last hospital didn't close until March 1863. So that's... Perryville Under Fire, The Aftermath of Kentucky's Largest Civil War Battle, by Stuart W. Sanders. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to let you guys know that I'm going to be having another procedure done on my eye this coming week, so we may or may not have a new episode for you next weekend. We'll have to play it by ear. If we leave you hanging and you find yourself absolutely positively needing to listen to a new show next weekend, you can always join the Strawfoot Brigade. And once you do, you'll have access to 60, count them, 60 members episodes. How is that for a segue into a plug for the Strawfoot Brigade? (laughs) Smooth. Ah, Thanks. Uh, And we do want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, uh, Ivan and Mark Etienne and Rebecca. Thanks, y'all. And thanks to Spiritwood Music for permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast. Thanks, Spiritwood Music. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time, which may or may not be next weekend. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.